I've talked before about how people try to turn politics into a simple two-dimensional or even one-dimensional binary thing, when in fact it's a little bit more complicated than that. However, if there was one issue that worked really well for defining political parties and candidates and realities on a single axis, it would be firearm freedoms. Welcome back to another T-Rex talk. Uh, you are probably wanting a break from politics. I know that I am. Uh, I had hoped to talk about something different on this particular episode, but if, if you want a break, uh, I would go and watch the YouTube video from last week, uh, posted on the T-Rex Arms YouTube channel, talking about in-reach satellite communication devices. Uh, that will be your break from politics. I keep wanting to uh, delve into other stuff, and yet stuff keeps happening in the world of politics that is such a good illustration for different stuff that I can't help but talk about it. And so today we're going to be talking a little bit about Governor Lujan Grisham down in New Mexico and her attempt to essentially completely ban the Second Amendment in New Mexico. Now, this happened last week, and I'm a little late to the story. A lot of stuff has happened. It's already been challenged in court. There are a number of lawsuits filed. There are already judgments from judges. It's obviously going nowhere. And yet, it is, like a lot of the stuff we talked about last week, a perfect example of something important. Now, how exactly Governor Grisham has dismissed the Second Amendment and gone to ban uh, the carry of firearms inside of Albuquerque using a governor's order that covers all of New Mexico is, is not really important. Not only has it been challenged uh, in a whole bunch of different ways in lawsuits, but uh, it kind of isn't really the point that I want to make. Uh, also, as I've stated before, I am not a lawyer. But there are six really interesting things about the way that she is going about this that we should keep an eye on. The first is the trend of making everything into an emergency. The entire reason for her justification of this extreme action is an emergency. Crime inside of Albuquerque is high, a couple of children were killed, and so it is an emergency. But everything is going to be an emergency from here on out. Here in Tennessee, Governor Lee declared that firearm deaths were an emergency. That was why we called the extraordinary special session. COVID stuff has always been an emergency and will be an emergency again in the future. And then of course, climate change, also an emergency. And many people, have in the past, and many people will continue in the future, to try to make gun violence some kind of public health emergency. That way, it falls under some sort of medical purview, and it justifies extreme action. Now, number two, her actions directly and knowingly violated the Constitution. This is very troubling for obvious reasons. And then number three, she's demanding cops to enforce things that they really shouldn't. And not just that she is demanding cops to enforce uh, an unconstitutional law, but she's demanding the state police of New Mexico to enforce what is essentially some civil stuff that uh, really isn't their jurisdiction, and to do it inside of Albuquerque because the, the local Albuquerque cops and sheriffs don't want to enforce this thing. So right out of the way, there's a total disregard for the laws that are on the books, but also the procedures. And then number four, she's totally disregarding reality and making this a performative thing. Uh, she knows that the criminals who are actually doing the killings are not concealed carry license holders. They're not people who are law-abiding citizens in the first place. And she has admitted... Uh, <laughs> 
in, uh, in media interviews that this is not going to have any effect on them. This is more making a statement. This kind of performative stuff, when you demand that the police actually take action and you actually fine and punish people purely out of performance, purely out of theater, not out of any sort of real problem-solving initiative, uh, is a huge issue for a lot of reasons. And then number five uh, definitely kind of goes along with that. Pragmatically speaking, this is ridiculously counterproductive. Law-abiding citizens in Albuquerque having access to firearms that they can use to protect people is what's actually going to protect people. So she doesn't care about the procedural, she doesn't care about the constitutional, and she doesn't care pragmatically how to solve this problem. But the sixth is the most important thing. This is true of an awful lot of government action now. It essentially is the main thing that we're going to be talking about in this episode. This action that she wants to take is diminishing the power of the people and taking it for the state. It expands the power of the state to do stuff that they procedurally and constitutionally have not been allowed to do in the past. And it takes away powers and rights that the people used to have in the past uh, so that they don't have them in the future. Now, again, this is true of pretty much all of the various legislative and executive actions taken against firearm freedoms. But it is a really important point to get into. Before we get to that, I do want to point out a little bit about who uh, Governor Lujan Grisham is. Uh, Lujan is her maiden name. She's part of the Lujan family. Uh, very well established in New Mexico politics. So in her family tree, there are state reps, Supreme Court justices, uh, state Supreme Court justices, and U.S. justices. And she was a political appointee bureaucrat who worked in the state of New Mexico and went on to build an elected official career, um, first as a New Mexico rep, then as a U.S. rep, and now governor of the state. And she also has a couple of uh, ethics uh, issues, nothing serious, like she didn't, uh, she didn't sleep with a Chinese spy like Eric Swalwell, but she definitely took gifts from Azerbaijan and that was discovered and there's, you know, there's just a bunch of little scandals, nothing major, just what I would call ambient room noise corruption that you would just expect in modern politics. And to some extent you expect in the Democratic Party, and to some extent you would expect from, uh, you know, a powerful political family that has been doing this for some time. And you would expect from somebody who has been appointed to political positions that they could later leverage to elected office. You know, it's, it's not shocking stuff. But I will sort of harken back to last week's episode talking about political tribalism. Political scandals are the best possible way to really see this kind of tribalism in action. And we had a couple of scandals last week that do a really good job of that. On the left, we have a Democratic political candidate uh, named Susanna Gibson. Uh, Susanna Gibson and her husband were doing uh, sexual activity online for money, which is possibly even illegal. Um, depending on how you interpret Virginia's prostitution laws. And the right are outraged and shocked, and the left are saying, this is fine. Meanwhile, Lauren Boebert was uh, discovered in some security camera footage doing some things with someone who is not her husband. Republicans are more or less looking the other way, and the Democrats are, of course, clutching their pearls, absolutely shocked that this would be going on. Now, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit trail. In some ways, I feel like the, uh, the Democrats have a little bit more of a leg to stand on, because at the very least, they have not claimed to be the paragons of virtue. They, after all, are becoming the party of do what thou wilt, no matter what. 
And the Republicans are the folks who talk about family values all the time. So if there is going to be a double standard, the Republicans should be doing the better job at maintaining conservative, uh, semi-biblical morality. They, they do campaign on it, after all. But because nobody wants to have really hard, clear standards anymore, it's very difficult to know where all this morality stuff actually shakes out. After all, the left was the party of the Me Too movement, and they were really, really highly opposed to the sort of things that are, well, shall we say, fairly common inside of congressional offices in blue states. Since the goalposts keep moving all the time, the best thing to do is just pure tribalism, where if your candidate does something wrong, it wasn't wrong simply because they were your candidate. And if somebody else does something, it was de facto wrong because they are the other candidate. It's uh, very, very problematic undergirds yet again why we need standards, actual stated clear and consistent standards as opposed to moving goalposts. But let's get back to this idea that comes from Governor Grisham. She knows that she is requiring the state to violate the Second Amendment and, depending on your interpretation of her order, the First Amendment and, of course, uh, New Mexico's own constitution has really similar amendments that uh, really should prevent the government from stepping into gun confiscation or banning of the keeping and bearing of arms. But, in her own words, no amendment is absolute. And this is a very common phrase that we hear nowadays, this idea that no amendment is absolute. And here is where I want to talk about uh, another issue that arises from this kind of tribalism. In addition to never being able to know how to categorize some kind of scandal until you know if the person has an R or a D in front of their name, there are specific presuppositions that different tribes will adopt. This statement, no amendment is absolute, is either complete and total hogwash or common sense depending on the presuppositions that you bring to the table. And we've talked about one of these before at length. Do rights come from the civil government or do they come from outside? Are they intrinsic to human beings? Have they been granted by God or politicians? There are two ways to read the Bill of Rights. Obviously, I believe one of them is the right way and one of them is the wrong way. The right way is to believe what the founders intended was to create a government that was extremely limited in its scope and in its jurisdiction. The other way to read it is that the Bill of Rights is just pointing out some nice things that the government has given to the people to be removed at any time that is convenient. No amendment, after all, is absolute. And I really do truly believe that there are two ways to read this amendment. If you start with the presupposition that civil government is God walking on earth, the highest possible authority that grants all things, permits all things, and uh, takes away all things, then you would read the First Amendment and see that these are some nice things that the founders wanted to give to the people as long as it was expedient to do so. But if you believe that the founders were right when they assumed that man is basically evil and government needs to be restricted to a very small jurisdiction, you come away with a very different impression of the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And, you know, it logically makes a little bit more sense when you read it that way. You need to remember that the founders had just fought a war with Britain. Uh, that's part of the reason why the Second Amendment exists. But the U.S. Constitution is not meant to limit the government of Great Britain. It is meant to limit the government of the United States. They were trying to keep it small. They were trying to keep it very limited in very many different ways. 
And that is how the government should be reading the Bill of Rights. After all, if the Bill of Rights is introducing governmental restrictions, then it is complete folly to say that no amendment isn't absolute. Those different amendments are limitations on government. And if the limitations on government are not absolute, then government itself becomes absolute. And the amendments have no point whatsoever. And believe it or not, a surprising number of people actually had a problem with this incredibly sweeping action that she demanded. Even David Hogg, who I have poked a little bit of fun at in the past for being an incredibly predictable anti-gun voice, uh, with very little originality. Even he pointed out that this kind of ridiculously powerful, sweeping, authoritarian action from a sitting governor based on a flimsy emergency was troubling. So I guess, uh, I guess Harvard still teaches something. CNN pointed out that she had gone too far and that this was basically just an act of political theater. The conversation about what is happening inside of New Mexico reveals that there's a lot of people who still have at least a very basic understanding that there should be some sort of limitations on government. And there's a whole bunch of people who don't believe that that is the case at all. One of whom is, of course, uh, Governor Grisham herself. When local law enforcement said that they were not going to enforce this particular law, this was Albuquerque PD and uh, I believe the sheriff of that county as well, she responded by saying that their job was not to tell her what was unconstitutional, but to do what she was telling them to do. Now, uh, she's sort of almost correct. Their job is not to do that until it becomes necessary. Then their job absolutely is to do that. That is why they take an oath of office to uphold the Constitution and not just uh, follow orders. So their job is absolutely to tell her when laws are unconstitutional. And I think that uh, it would have been really interesting if somebody in New Mexico had arrested her. That would have been a much more interesting uh, legal challenge than the ones that are currently happening. Now, I also don't know that it would have gone super well, but all I'm saying is it would have been interesting. When people asked her if she thought that the criminals would obey this law, she admitted that they wouldn't, but that it would be a very important message to send. But obviously not to the criminals, to someone else. She made the point that New Mexico gun owners needed to have some sort of inconvenience so that they could understand that she was serious about stuff, but uh, apparently not serious about upholding the Constitution or directly affecting crime. And when she made the original announcement about what she was doing, she was flanked by a whole bunch of people wearing the red t-shirts of Every Town for Gun Safety and Moms Demand Action, which demonstrates that she had a much more political goal in mind than uh, actually, you know, solving Albuquerque's problems. So let's get to the main, the main point here. Why is it that guns are such a big deal? Why are they such a big deal uh, to people who are political activists on one side or another? Now, there's a whole bunch of people who understand in sort of vague terms that, that guns matter. Even guys like David Hogg and uh, certain CNN reporters who don't like guns understand that freedom is a big deal. And while they want disarmament, they do want certain rights protected and they do want certain stopgaps in place. But then there's a bunch of Americans who are not quite as inconsistent as David Hogg. They think guns are important in general, but they couldn't really give you a super specific example why they matter so much. 
Because when you think about it, guns themselves are not everything. They are not a core ideological principle. They are merely the current technology that exists for certain types of uh, energy transfer and combat application. In the past, there have been different tools for that, and in the future, I'm sure there will be different tools still. But they do touch on several things that are core ideological principles, foundational things that all human beings need for human flourishing. Things like self-defense and the right of private property are core fundamental freedoms, and guns are the intersection of both of those things. The ability for us to defend ourselves and our property and to own the best tools to do that are pretty key. That's why guns are such a great litmus test. They test whether we do actually have these two very important rights, the rights of self-defense and the rights of private property. And uh, they also, it should be noted, are the tools for guaranteeing these things. That's why they are the tip of the spear in this conflict, this ongoing tribalistic culture war between two groups of people. Uh, they're not necessarily Republicans and Democrats, but the groups of people who believe that A, civil government is absolute and should be in control of everything and should determine what is best for everyone and should be responsible for protecting everyone. And Group B, those people who believe that government has a very small number of things that it should be doing, that it is a very limited jurisdiction, and that it is only one institution among many. If you would like to boil political discourse and the culture war down into two sides, these are pretty much the two sides. This is about as irreducibly complex as you can get it without delving into theology. And whether people can articulate it or not, I think that everybody has some basic level of understanding here, especially the activists. They understand that they want the government to be responsible for these things, not individuals. They want the government to have a monopoly on violence and not the people. And it's very logical for people who have put their full faith and trust in the United States government to be offended by people who want to put that government in a box. People who would like to retain those freedoms and those responsibilities and that authority for themselves. It becomes personal. If a person believes that an all-powerful messianic state walking on earth is in fact the way that we bring about a utopia, well, clearly they're going to be offended by people who want to, at all costs, prevent that from happening. And if the messianic state can only exist when it actually has a complete monopoly on violence, then obviously that needs to be a pretty high priority. And again, not every gun control advocate is going to understand this at a deep level. They may not realize that what they are advocating for is totalitarianism. But they're definitely wanting a bigger and more powerful government to stop bad things from happening, and they're definitely annoyed when the people who they blame for bad things happening keep getting in the way of this kind of social and political progress. Meanwhile, people on the right who can't really articulate why guns are such a big deal are super offended by people who know nothing about guns and just want to take them away no matter what. They're kind of befuddled when a New Mexico governor says that she's going to prevent people from carrying guns even though it isn't going to have the slightest impact on criminals or crime, and that she's going to demand that law enforcement do whatever she say even though it violates a whole bunch of really good laws, and she's going to say that she doesn't care what the Supreme Court even thinks 
I mean, it is a little mind-boggling, so much so that CNN and David Hogg are slightly taken aback by saying the quiet part so loudly. And since there is such a tribal disconnect at the surface level, I think that it's incumbent on all of us to have a better understanding of those fundamentals. Why are firearms so important to this particular conversation? And can we have the real conversation about the two sides of this particular argument without spending all the time on the trimmings? Even though, again, firearms are uh, more than just external trimmings. Uh, they are the intersection of where the rubber really meets the road on this particular issue. Is the state sovereign in the lives of men, or does it have any limitations whatsoever? Can a civil government actually be anything that its citizens want it to be? Can they vote literally anything into existence, uh, morally speaking? Or are there standards that even governments are bound by? This is ultimately the conversation that we are having. It has nothing to do with popularity. It has nothing to do with pragmatism. It is ultimately a religious conversation between those who have placed their faith in a state that is the supreme lawgiver and people who say that it isn't. 